Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Max Welling. Max is a research chair in machine learning at the University of Amsterdam, as well as vice president of technologies at Qualcomm and a fellow at the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research, or CIFAR. Max, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thank you very much, Sam. Uh, It's great to get a chance to chat with you, Max. Uh, You're quite accomplished uh, in the field of machine learning, and uh, I'd love to understand what drew you to AI and how you kind of started your career in this area. I actually started not in AI. I started in physics. So I did my PhD thesis in uh, theoretical physics. Um, And that was fun. Um, But it was also somewhat abstract in the sense that I couldn't see how I could have a major impact with that. Um, And so I decided I wanted to change to some a field that was a bit more, you know, uh, less static and more dynamic at that point in time. Um, And so I wanted to do something like neuroscience, uh, which thought which just was a great choice. Um, and so I applied for, for, to Caltech, to Pietro Perona's lab. Um, and, um, but, you know, I basically ended up be doing computer vision there. Um, and then later when I went to uh, London, I worked with Jeff Hinton. I was doing machine learning. So I sort of migrated, meandered, uh, you know, from physics through computer vision to machine learning. Um, and there I really, fu- you know, uh, found a home because I thought, okay, so this is going to grow big in the future, uh, which actually happened. Um, and there's so many applications um, with which, you know, this field can impact the world in a positive way that I sort of decided to stay there. Uh, that first jump uh, into computer vision, was that computer vision applied to neuroscience in some way? No, it was just computer vision, basically analyzing images um, on a computer screen, basically, right? So it, it hasn't, it didn't have anything to do with with neuroscience, although I was, you know, I was fascinated by that question, and I, you know, I was going to some meetings on neuroscience, um, and you know, integrated somewhat with neuroscience and Caltech. Um, in the end, um, I was doing computer vision, which which was great too. Okay, okay, uh, and I get a chance to talk to a lot of folks that started their career in physics. Um, a lot of folks more on the applied side, whether uh, astronomy or, you know, dealing with things like, uh, you know, some folks that work at, at uh, using colliders and things like that, but you are more on the theoretical side. That's right. Yes, I was doing my thesis in two plus one dimensional quantum gravity. So it was a uh, very abstract and theoretical. Um, it gave me a good, you know, basis for mathematics, um, but it wasn't very applied. That's true. And so at some point along the line, you started a company, Cypher. Uh, when was that in your career and what was the inspiration for the company? Yeah, so that was actually when I came back to the Netherlands. So I had, my career was uh, in North America and a little bit of time in London um, until about six years ago um, when, I, when I decided to come back to the Netherlands. Um, and fairly quickly after that, um, we founded this company. It was... You know, it was an interesting story because we were working with uh, with a big Dutch bank and they wanted to do a competition uh, to predict, uh, you know, what ads, uh, you know, customers would 
want to click on when you offered them. Um, and they were doing that with a bunch of big uh, sort of consultancy companies. Um, and we were basically, I was asked to basically arbitrage, right, to make sure that, you know, everything went right and the competition was fair. Um, and in order to do that, I just asked one of my master's students, Taco Cohen, um, who's, st- who's also working at Qualcomm at this point, um, to, you know, to also implement some models. And he did that on his, on his laptop, uh, laptop with a single GPU in it. And then when we looked at the results, you know, we basically, uh, we beat all the big companies and the big banks that, you know, if that's the case, then you get the job. And so that was the start, <laughs> that was the start of our company, right? I, I then, uh, so then um, two other people joined, um, Taima Blankevoort and Jure Sandig. Jure Sandig was an old physics uh, pal of mine. And that's what started the company. And um, and from there, you know, five five good years of running, we, we did lots of consultancy with companies and, you know, looked at their AI problems. Um, and then Qualcomm came around and said, you know, you have a good-sized group here, all very experienced people, nice practical attitude, and they wanted to acquire us. And, you know, there was a couple of other companies also that were looking at us, um, but, you know, we went with Qualcomm. And at the time Qualcomm came around, were you looking to be acquired or were you ready to, to try something else or did it, uh, you know, did the opportunity just present itself and you evaluated it uh, on its terms? Yeah, we did the latter. So we weren't optimizing, you know, for being acquired or anything. It was just like, you know, we were having a lot of fun and some people actually thought, you know, that we should keep going and grow. Other people thought, you know, Maybe it's, you know, maybe it's actually interesting to join a big company and, you know, have a lot more oomph, like a lot more power. You can, you can make a bigger impact if you're part of a big company. Um, and so it was basically an opportunity that we evaluated at that point. And we thought, well, this is good. We should try this. Uh, but prior to the primary focus of the company was on uh, consulting, there wasn't a product being built or, or something along those lines? Yeah, we, we did actually build a product as well. Um, so there was an active learning tool, which was uh, actually implemented at Tata Steel. Um, and it works as follows. So um, you have an expert. So we, there was like cameras looking at slabs of steel, which were being produced. And there were sometimes small little uh, sort of defects on that steel. Um, we had a battery of cameras above it, and um, we were detecting these defects. Um, but, you know, there were a couple of classes, and some of these defect classes were very rare. Uh, we didn't have a lot of data on them, and so the, the algorithm didn't perform very well. And so then the algorithm assessed itself and said, okay, so for, the, for these types of you know, images, we need more labels. And so that was then shipped to an expert. The expert would label it. It would go back into the system, and the system would learn again and become better gradually over time. So that's active learning where there's a human in the loop, and the algorithm interacts with the human. Um, and that was basically our product. Okay, uh, I don't, I don't, I can't speak necessarily to the approach, but it sounds uh, very similar, uh, at least from a problem domain and general direction. To uh, well, lots of folks are going after this area, but landing AI, Andrew Ng's company uh, comes to mind as kind of tackling that similar kind of applying. Uh, AI to industrial problems, including like de- defect detection, things like that. Um, was that uh, was that product kind of one of a portfolio of challenges that you were uh, going after, or was that a big focus? It wasn't a big focus actually. So this company was more opportunistic in that sense. So we 
Um, we basically talk to a lot of companies in a very diverse uh, uh, set of sectors. So from finance to, you know, to uh, manufacturing, you know, to retail. And we basically, you know, we were very good at going in and talking to these people and say, okay, what is your, you know, what is your, what does your problem look like? What is your, where is your opportunity? What data do you have? And then we did a quick assessment and we made a recommendation and uh, perhaps a very quick demo. And then um, and if they were happy, then we went for a slightly longer sort of uh, trial where we would actually, you know, implement, you know, a system to just show them that, you know, we can, we can you know, you can actually get value out of out of the data that they have. And if they, they were still, you know, happy after that, and this was like maybe six months later, then we would go into a, you know, an actual implementation of the whole thing. And so we repeated this many times with many companies, which gave the team an enormous amount of uh, sort of experience with a very broad spectrum of problems. And I think that's what made the team also very attractive. Uh, so that acquisition was in 2017. You're a couple of years in now at Qualcomm. You know, this thesis of kind of the oomph of a, a larger company uh, creating some opportunities for you, did that thesis bear out? The interesting part of working for Qualcomm for me um, was that I um, have always taken compute for granted. Um, basically, if I needed to compute something, then, you know, there's this computer which has some chips in it and it will do its job. Um, but with the advance of deep learning, um, we see that, you know, bigger models um, just perform better. And so compute becomes a really important part of the equation. Um, and so, you know, a good way to make progress um, is to make sure that your algorithm actually runs extremely efficiently. And so, of course, uh, you know, the, um, the GPUs came and, you know, they made compute, deep learning compute a lot more efficient, which is part of why things are going so well with deep learning. Um, but this is a very fundamental problem, question, right? It's like, okay, so, you know, a, a brain doesn't compute, you know, with uh, 32 bits precision. Um, it's very noisy. Um, so should we, you know, change our compute paradigm in, you know, in our computer as well? Should we... You know, should we maybe try to train with a lot less precision, maybe a, a couple of bits precision? Um, and um, do these neural networks have to be so huge, right? These neural networks typically have like even mil hundreds of millions of parameters, sometimes billions of parameters. Do they necessarily have to be that big? Because that consumes a lot of, uh, of memory and compute as well. Um, and also, you know, if you go a little deeper, if you dig a little deeper in the problem, then what you find is all these all these parameters of these big models, they are living in a sort of off-ship memory called DDR, and you have to bring them to the registers where you do all the MAC computes, the multiply and accumulate computes. Um, and that movement of data costs a lot of energy. And so, but in the brain, actually, it isn't so separated. We call that separation the von Neumann architecture, where memory and compute are very separated. Um, but in a, in a brain, actually, what you find is that the memory and the computer are very close, right? Because, you know, things are stored in these uh, um, synapses uh, between neurons and, and the neurons compute. Um, and so much more distributed. And um, so, so there's a lot of fundamental questions of can we, can we just change the compute paradigm um, so that we can do things far more energy efficient? Um, and that's, that's basically what I find the biggest thrill of working in Qualcomm in actually trying to make that happen um, and then scaling up uh, sort of 
AI computations a lot, which might actually be you know, one of the big reasons why we're making a lot of progress. And then, uh, yeah, basically shipping, whenever you have such a thing and you build you know, a chip on a, on a new paradigm or a new principle, you can then put them in a chip and you can then ship them to you know, a billion customers in a billion phones, right? And that's the scaling you were asking about, which is extremely exciting. You've got joint appointments both with uh, in academia and Qualcomm. Uh, that's becoming increasingly common, but everyone kind of manages it differently. Uh, what's the relationship for you? How is your your work and research distributed across those appointments? Yeah, so I have like about half an appointment in academia and half an appointment in Qualcomm in, at Qualcomm, okay. which I think which I think is actually a very good distribution. Um, so. It typically, in the university, you work on more fundamental questions, which are very far out um, and don't have a, you know, a sort of a, a horizon of being a, you know, productized or you know, finding applications of four years maybe. So at, at say at Qualcomm, we work on, you know, on problems which between you know uh, one year and four years or five years uh, will find an application within the company. Um, in academia, you're completely free to do whatever you want, and it could be, you know, a hundred years out if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it's interesting to have one lag in sort of both of these uh, ecosystems and both of these environments. It does strike me that some of the things that we're talking about here are coming up with fundamental new compute architectures, you know, perhaps that are more inspired by uh, the brain and and synaptic and neural architectures, things like that. That could be uh, very far-reaching research. Are you working on uh, that, uh, that kind of work in the academic setting as well? Um, so the the compute um, uh, sort of the thinking about how compute interacts with um, you know uh, with AI and machine learning and intelligence that's something that I exclusively do at Qualcomm although it did start um, in academia so I was doing um, Bayesian deep learning so Bayesian statistics is a particular paradigm um, a statistical paradigm so you have frequentist and Bayesian sort of statistics and Bayesian Statistics, you put probability distributions over your model. You basically say, I don't know, you know, what my model really is. Um, so I have some probability distribution um, over my possible parameters of my model. And then when I see data, I'm going to narrow down that distribution of parameters to the ones that are actually describing the data that I see. Um, so, so that's something that wasn't really applied at deep learning. And so we started to apply that statistical paradigm to deep learning. Which was a challenge because there's you know millions and millions of parameters that you have to sort of handle that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we found is um, that we can use we could use that paradigm to uh, basically compress a neural network, um, you know, with a factor of a hundred uh, without losing any of the accuracy. Which was actually a big shock to me. Which is like, okay, so we're working with these models which are which have a million parameters, but you could train the same model. You could just keep one out of 100 parameters and throw away all the rest, um, and you would have a model which would function exactly the same way, which would not be any worse than the one that you started with. Um, and so that's generally known as, as compression, neural network compression. So they are o- heavily over-parameterized. Mm-hmm. So, and we did that within the paradigm of Bayesian deep learning. It was a very good fundamental tool um, to, you know, to do that compression. Did you apply this compression to these Bayesian deep learning models, or 
is there uh, something fundamental about Bayesian deep learning that allows it to, um, you know, that's synergistic with this kind of compression? Yeah. So it's more the latter. So okay. Um, so it's basically so you have a because we do this kind of compression with uh, with traditional CNNs and the, and the like as well, right? Yes, that's right. So so basically, um, it's one way, one technique to do this compression on a neural network. It has some additional advantages, which is that you can also um, uh, sort of express your uncertainty over a prediction, right? So you can actually say, you know, I think it's this class or, you know, uh, this is happening in an image, but, you know, I'm 80% certain that that's actually correct, right? And so the, the Bayesian paradigm also allows you to do that. But um, you can also use it to prune large parts of your neural network away. So it's sort of a, a principal way of doing that. Um, and so we started doing that, and that's, you know, coming back to academia versus Qualcomm. So we started doing that in academia because that was a very academic exercise at that point. Mm -hmm. But it became practical uh, because we could compress these neural nets. And then we, you know, Qualcomm, we, we took it to Qualcomm. And now there's a whole team uh, led by Tim and uh, Blankevort who is basically um, trying all, you know, sorts of algorithms to try to compress these neural networks in, a, in, in the most practical way. And often the Bayesian way is not the most practical way. You know, it, it could be perhaps like a very good way, but it's not yet of a very hands-off, you know, way to do things. And so some of these other methods, which are much simpler to understand, um, can also compress these neural networks to basically the same degree. And those are the ones that actually make it into the toolkits that we use at Qualcomm. It sounds like there's kind of a dynamic relationship, I guess, as one would expect between the kind of things you're working on from an academic perspective and what you're doing at Qualcomm, although, uh, you know, they differ in their time frames. Yeah, they, you know, and, and it it is a little bit like that. So, um, so another maybe great example, which I'm very enthusiastic about, is um, work that I do with Taco Cohen and Maurice Weiler um, on... Um, so, so uh, one is uh, was a PhD student, um, now uh, full-time employee at Qualcomm, Taco Cohen, and then Maurice Weiler is now a PhD student at Cuva Lab. So Cuva Lab is actually a lab funded by Qualcomm at the University of Amsterdam. Okay. Um, and so, th so that work is um, to include symmetries um, in deep learning. So in other words, if I you know turn my head, um, the objects that I see you know turn around. Um, in, in my brain. Um, however, it's still the same objects, right? And so that's what we call a symmetry. If I, you know, if I move something, then it's still the same object, even though it, it has moved. Um, and so incorporating these types of symmetries into neural networks is actually a very powerful way to make them better, turns out. Um, and, um, and so, you know, with Taco Cohen, we started that process, um, you know, almost, I don't know, six years ago or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and it became quite successful. And now very recently, um, we did something that actually is, is quite you know, amazing, I would say. So we started to use the mathematics of um, general relativity, which is uh, you know, the fundamental theory of gravity uh, made by Einstein. Um, and the same mathematics is actually in quantum field theory, which is you know, behind the standard model, which is the fundamental theory about particles. Um, and this, 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 this theory is called gauge theory. Um, and it was actually the topic for my PhD thesis, which is interesting, I would say. So that came back after 20 years. 
Um, and we started to incorporate these mathematical ideas into deep learning. Um, and now we can do deep learning on arbitrary manifolds. So you can think of a sphere like the, the Earth, and you want to detect storms or other weather patterns um, on the Earth. Um, then you can use this particular tool, or, you know, deep learning tool, to 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 analyze you know these these manifolds. Um, you can also think about um, you know in VR, right, in, in virtual reality, um, you generate you know maybe a game or something like that. So you generate objects in your world. These are synthetic. Um, and you can sort of uh, put texture, high-resolution texture on these objects using you know, this kind of tool. And so it's a very, very fundamental, you know, exercise, academic exercise to take, you know, these mathematical theories or, or that are used in theoretical physics and put them into a deep learning algorithm. Um, but then actually when you're done, once you're done and you, you look, you know, at it from a distance, you, you discover all these beautiful applications actually um, – and that's, I think, the perfect, you know, I think the perfect line of thinking, right? So you you start with something very fundamental, you make big progress, um, you make an impact on, you know, a lot of, you know, the, the whole field, and then you find that there is all sorts of interesting applications popping popping up um, that you hadn't thought thought about before. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, uh, some questions on that. Uh, you started out talking about uh, the work that you were doing around symmetry. Uh, and then transitioned into the the gauge uh, networks. Are those? I didn't catch the relationship between those. Are those? Uh, is that work specifically related? Did the one lead to the other? Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. So, um, yeah, that's a good question because I, I went very fast over that. But in in so and it follows precisely the same uh, steps as were done in physics, right? In I think in uh, you know 1906 or so. Um, Einstein came with his special theory of relativity, which basically described how different observers who move at a constant speed relative to each other see different phenomenon. And, and he and Maxwell uh, found that um, basically magnetism will turn into electricity if you, you change observer and, you know, and, and move it with a constant speed. Mm -hmm. um, so, so if, a, if, a, if a static observer sees an electric, you know, electric field, then a moving observer will see a magnetic field, um, and so um, and so that's a symmetry, right? It's a constant symmetry. It's like you rotate something, or you you know you rotate the whole you know Earth around, or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, now, uh, after that um, came you know Einstein generalized that into general relativity, and he said, well, actually, it's it's not just you know, these global symmetries, but actually, you know, we should be able to have a much larger set of symmetries, which is basically, I should be able to, you know, to change speed, you know, and, and acceleration at every, any point in time. And I can sort of change my frame of reference at differently at every point in space time. Um, and that's a much more general theory. It's called a local uh, symmetry. So it's a, it's a much more general symmetry. It's called a local symmetry, and a local symmetry is also referred to as a gauge symmetry. And it turns out when you think about that, that kind of much larger set of symmetries, then he figured out, for instance, that acceleration and gravity are actually, you know, the same phenomenon, but observed by, you know, one person who is standing still and another person who is accelerating relative to the other person. And so now again, you know, you'll, you'll have symmetries incorporated in your theory, and your theory becomes a lot richer. So that's happened. So exactly that progression has happened for us too. So we started with these global symmetries, 
Um, and then we turned to local symmetries and, you know, we went from basically, you know, doing deep learning on flat images to deep learning on curved manifolds. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, when you first started talking about symmetries, the uh, the thing that came to mind was, you know, that maybe you were going after the same type of problem as Jeffrey Hinton, uh, who you've worked with, and uh, his capsule networks. Uh, but it sounds like uh, you ended up in very different places. But I would say that um, you're actually quite right there. So it turns out that um, this, is, you know, this is a little hard to explain, but out of this theory of symmetries, mm-hmm. um, capsules emerge quite naturally. Um, and it's a bit hard to explain how that precisely works. Um, but it's, it's true that what you'll have is you'll have these neurons. Um, so when you, when you apply translational invariance, these neurons will now be what we call feature maps, which is an entire sort of filtered image. Um, and when you apply additional symmetries like rotation, you get sort of stacks of filter maps. Um, that sort of that sort of transform into each other if you rotate the underlying image, and that that stack of filter maps is what we call a capsule, and that's actually what Jeff Hinton also talks about when he when he talks about capsules. Mm-hmm. Now he has this sort of dynamic routing algorithm, which is which is something on top of these capsules, which you know we haven't implemented in our code yet. Um, but these two things are actually remarkably related. So you were actually quite right there. So within the the gauge CNNs, you have this concept of a capsule uh, as well. Is, is that correct? It's I would say uh, yes, but it's also already in the sort of normal uh, sort of uh, what we call group CNNs. So it's it. So before we did gauge CNNs with a local symmetry, um, capsules also naturally appear in. You know these uh, these groups uh, like a, a global rotation or or a translation or something like that. And uh, beyond the conceptual, uh, well, you've got this this uh, common conceptual foundation between uh, Hinton's capsule networks and your gauge equivariant CNNs are. Are there other relationships between the two um, that grow out of these, or what are the relationships between the two that kind of grow out of these uh, kind of the shared feature maps and invariances within the networks? Yeah, I think it it would be a fairly technical discussion to try to explain that, but (laughs) let let, let me limit myself to saying that um, sort of in Jeff in Jeff Hinton's theory, um, he he. He basically says, okay, so I, I want my feature maps to be divided up in, in these capsules. And then basically the particular configuration within a capsule, you know, is the pose of something. Um, and then, you know, the maybe the, you know, the strength of, you know, how much of that capsule is present, you know, is, is, is it, it, that indicates how strongly a particular object is seen in the image. Um, so he he goes in with a, sort of an intuition and he 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 builds it in. Um, where in our case we start with the symmetry from the principle of symmetry and actually the math you know basically drives us to these capsules. But in the end these they were they're actually completely the same thing. So so I would say we lay the mathematical foundation for the capsules that that Hinton's intuition sort of uh, uh, brought. 
Um, yeah, and so you know, there is so he has dynamical routing, which is something that is sort of on top of it, which which we don't do necessarily. We you know we we went into the direction of, of gauge equivariance, um, but it's you know we we are basically in parallel, sort of developing uh, these ideas. I would say. Okay, and so is the idea with these gauge CNNs related to. Uh, are they more compact or do they open up new uh, applications or do they perform better? What, what does this approach buy us? Right. So, um, so it's, it's mostly if you want to do deep learning on a, on something that's not a plane, right? So, ima- so, so the, the manifolds. Easy- yeah. So imagine, you know, you want to, you know, so of course, a simple example is th- think of the Earth and think of a signal on the Earth, like maybe temperature or you know wind patterns or something like that. And you want to predict, you know, maybe the weather in ten days or something like that. Or you want to find where is the storm or where is the, you know, the, you know weather pattern that you're interested yeah. in. I also did a really um, interesting interview with a woman named Nina Mialan who does uh, or Mialane. Who does a Python package, Geomstats, that is focused on doing statistics on manifolds? And the example that she gave was pretty interesting. It's like if you want to do statistics or learning on something like a, a human heart in medicine, uh, yes. it is, uh, you know, much more naturally amenable to dealing with it as a set of manifolds or curves than in a, you know, a typical rectilinear space. Yes. So exactly. So that's on our to-do list, um, and we are actually collaborating with people who know much more about you know these medical applications than than we do. Um, but that's certainly one of the applications areas. So application areas. So you can think of a of a beating heart or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you would put like a mesh on that beating heart, um, and you could sort of a curved mesh, pre- as opposed to yeah. a straight mesh. Well, the mesh has to live on the manifold right? right so there's right. a lot of nodes you distribute over this mesh and you connect them by little lines basically mm-hmm. um and so and so then you can try to maybe you know predict whether this heart is um has you know strange behavior or something like that as, as abnormal behavior um or you could try to figure out you know where's you know where certain pieces of the heart are you want to segment them out or something like that maybe you want to detect where the vessels are the valves are or something like that right so certainly you know that's a that's a prime example of where we have a, a manifold um, and where we want to do deep learning on that manifold um, yeah and so that's certainly something that we are we're planning to do okay and, and so in talking about this mesh um, you also bring up the idea or it brings up for me the idea of like graphs um is the gauge cnn kind of fundamentally a a graph cnn or um is that something that you're working on as well you're asking really good questions i would say so (laughs) so in fact um one of the reasons why um you know we are exploring this kind of mashed version of gate CNNs, which is we put a mesh on the manifold and then we send messages between the nodes over the edges, um, is that it looks a lot like a graph convolution, mm-hmm. which is which is another object where you do deep learning on graphs. But um, a manifold, even a meshed manifold, is not a graph because um, 
this has something to do with the fact that the neighbors are not sort of exchangeable. The neighbors are are not a set. The neighbors are actually ordered. Um, they they you know something to the right has a different meaning than something to the left, and so people sometimes actually do graph convolutions on these meshes, um, but that's actually slightly suboptimal. And so the way we do it, so this this gauge equivariant neural networks um, is precisely um, designed to do it optimally in, in a way, to do it the right way. And we have a PhD student now at Qualcomm, who is Qualcomm and PhD student at University of Amsterdam, Pim de Haan, who is precisely working on this topic. So he's precisely trying to nail this topic of, you know, uh, what is the difference between a graph convolution and this meshed gauge convolution? And, you know, is there a real practical advantage above, you know, doing it correctly in a mathematical sense? You know, is there also a practical advantage of doing it in this particular way? Uh, so all of these, uh, we've talked about uh, things from kind of very optimization-focused uh, ideas like compression to Bayesian deep learning and uh, gauge uh, CNNs. Within within Qualcomm, these are all more research-oriented topics as opposed to um, kind of product oriented topics is that right well um i would say that the um it, it's true to some degree but i would say that compression neural network compression and quantization um has immediate uh, sort of practical applications and in fact you know the team of time and blank time and blankford is already implementing these methods into a toolbox which is going to be commercialized so and the reason why this is important is that um, if I have my neural network that I'm very fond of and I trained it in the cloud, maybe using TensorFlow or PyTorch or something like that, um, and now I want to run it on my phone, um, but it's too big to run on my phone um, because it takes too much energy and then my phone doesn't have that much memory. Right? So what I want to provide to the customer is a tool that automatically compiles this big neural network into a much smaller neural network that basically has the same performance uh, as the bigger one. Um, but runs on our Snapdragon uh, sort of AI chipsets, um, you know, very very efficiently. Mm-hmm. And you know, doing that is actually, you know, you 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 need to you know get the the neural network into a much more lean sort of um, framework. Um, and then you also need to compile the operations that this neural network has to do, which is basically matrix multiplications, matrix vector multiplications. Um, you have to compile them in such a way that they run very quickly on the particular piece of hardware. Um, and, and you can also optimize that a lot. Um, and so we are, for instance, also working on, um, on algorithms. So this is Chang Yong Oh and Stratis Gavis, who are you know, people at uh, this Cuba lab. Um, we are working on what we call Bayesian optimization algorithms, which is um, algorithms which optimize over a very large discrete space, right, of choices. So the choices are, you know, should I first, you know, do this particular multiplication and then this addition or should I first do it the other way around? So there is an exponential number of possible choices that you have there in optimizing that code. Um, and so how can you quickly expo- explore um, all of these oppor- all of these possibilities? And so Chang Yong developed a beautiful algorithm that, that with a minimal number of trials, um, quickly zooms in on the optimal sort of uh, configuration of these discrete choices. In order to apply a Bayesian optimization to 
this kind of problem, you first need to expose the, I guess, the features or the uh, kind of the control levers, if you will, of the problem, which operation goes first versus second. Those aren't necessarily naturally uh, exposed from the models. Is that right? Do, do you have to kind of do something or build something in order to be able to apply Bayesian optimization to these kinds of problems? Yeah. So typically you can think of two levels. So um, let's let's say on a phone. Um, so if I have a particular proposal of doing my computations, um, then I can you know compile that onto the phone, the actual physical phone, and run it and measure how well I was doing. Now, of course, that takes some time, right? We are talking about, you know, maybe seconds or something like that. I don't know, um, to actually measure, you know, that that configuration. And so, if you do it that way, you go very slow. Um, but you can also build a simulator, right? And the simulator would uh, basically figure out, in approximation, how good that particular configuration would be. But it's uncertain, right? And so you can imagine that um, you sort of you know, you first do a couple, you know, a couple of steps of optimization on the simulator, which is very fast. And then when you get too uncertain, you then go to the physical device and you try a few things um, to see how, how well you're doing. You then update update your simulator or the, the sort of surrogate model that, that estimates how well you're doing. Um, and then you sort of keep optimizing there again. So, so there is this basically game that you play um, you can do you can measure things very precisely but quite expensively, or you can measure things very quickly but sort of approximately, right? And you know this is the choices that you have, and you have to navigate those choices as quickly as possible to get to the final best possible configuration. One of the the characteristics of dealing with uh, devices that need to be produced in, in silicon is relatively long lead times as opposed to software products. Can you? Talk a little bit about productizing these types of ideas in, in that kind of environment. Yeah, so I would say um, we mostly work on software, right? So in so in in, in many ways, what we do is um, can can be quite quickly productized. I would say because it's basically a software tool or you know an enhancement of some kind. Okay. Um, but we do work with hardware folks, right? So we do work on you know exciting new hardware developments. Um, for instance, compute in memory is, is something, you know, it's, it's well known. It's a bunch of startup companies are also working on that. Mm -hmm. Um, that's basically where you would, instead of moving that data that I talked to you about before from, uh, the DDR memory to the chip, you would basically do the computation directly in that memory cell. So you would directly do your computation in, you know, in, in memory which is actually, you know, analog. So this is actually, you know, volts and currents and stuff like that. Um, and so now the game is, and that's a very interesting game. You know, the game is, you know, you try to develop a piece of hardware um, that runs optimally for a particular algorithm, like a deep learning algorithm in this sense, in this case. Um, and at the same time, you're trying to adapt the deep learning algorithm uh, to work as well as possible on that particular piece of hardware. And so this is a, a trend um, that you can see much more generally, which is that hardware design and software design are starting to become more and more integrated and entangled with each other. It's not just here, but it's in many other places where you can see that, you know, pieces of hardware are being replaced by pieces of software run on sort of a, a deep learning engine on a chip. Um, you know, you have, 
you know, an, in a heterogeneous compute environment with many different types of compute like DSP and CPU and GPU, etc. Um, if you're faced with a certain computation, you will have to distribute that computation across all of these, uh, you know, different compute engines. And you have to think smartly about how to do that, right? And again, there is a controller, sort of an, an intelligent agent that will have to learn how to do this efficiently. So you can see that software, machine learning, or, you know, learnable sort of software um, and hardware are going to get tight, more and more tightly integrated, which I think is a very fascinating development. Let's maybe shift gears and talk a little bit about uh, kind of forward-looking uh, ideas. You recently wrote a post about the kind of responding to a, a Rich Sutton blog. I'll let you maybe talk a little bit about the background and then the post, but it kind of ponders this idea of you know what's most important: models versus data versus compute. Um, can you talk a little bit about that that work and how you see that um, kind of playing out uh, in the the future of the space? Yeah, so I think this was more like my uh, sort of rainy Sunday afternoon sort of write up about something that you know I just <laughs> I threw out there and it actually got a lot of attention. So it was interesting. It sort of hit the right, I guess, the right nerve. People are very interested in that kind of thing. Um, and it, it's really about a super fundamental problem. And I think, you know, researchers, uh, we should talk about this more because it, it might determine for many young researchers in the field, you know, where they want to head with their particular research. Um, and so I was actually very grateful to Rich that he posted that particular post. Um, he basically said something, and I may, I, I may, you know, charge it a little bit, but it's like, um, you know, uh, we should really not, um, try to model all that much um, because in the end, uh, if we focus on scaling our architectures or sort of more g general purpose uh, machine learning architectures, um, if we wait long enough, then, you, you know, f using Moore's law, you'll basically get to a point where you always get beaten by these kind of uh, sort of scalable algorithms that are basically just, you know, eating data and, and turning them into predictions. Um and, you know, there's been a lot of examples that actually, you know, where this was actually the case, right? So we had, um, you know, we had models of speech where, you know, people had built, you know, models of the human, you know, uh, voice tract. Um, and they were sort of, you know, they, had, they, were, they were modeling how people produce speech and then they were, you know, matching that with the actual observations, and then trying to figure out, you know, what what the mouth, how the mouth actually moved, and therefore what word was being spoken. Um, and later, people found, well, you know, if you just collect enough data, then um, you can just map, you know, basically take take the 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 audio signal that hits your microphone, right, and and map it, learn to map it to the words that produced it. Um, and if you have enough of those pairs, like audio signal and word. Um, then this this sort of, in some sense, stupid, if you want, uh, uh, sort of a statistical tool uh, vastly outperformed um, these kind of more mechanical tools. Mm -hmm. um, and this happened in speech, and it happened in, in also in, um, in, co in computer vision, where um, basically the best methods are now these deep learning methods where you basically collect a huge amount of data on images, you segment them, you tell me what's the objects in the image, and then you train on all that data, and you get an algorithm that performs very, very well, better than anything else. I mean, this all goes back to, uh, the, I think, the most uh, quoted 
example of this, uh, and there are many, are the Peter Norvig uh, unreasonable effectiveness of data paper where he talks about Google. You know, they're not better at this because they have better algorithms. It's because they just have more data. Absolutely. Right. So a lot of these Internet companies are in the business of getting data. Um, and by having all that data, they can do things that, you know, we didn't thought were possible before. Um, and this was a very valuable lesson, right? So, you know, collecting more data and having the compute to do the computations um, is basically, you know, one of the reasons why we're seeing all this progress. Um, but, the, but it begs the question, how far can we take it, right, this particular idea? And there's other people like Josh Tenenbaum who has been who have been saying the opposite. So he's been saying, well, you know, um, the world actually operates in the other direction, which means that, you know, physics, um, the, de the data generating process is much more like we have objects in the world. These objects move under the laws of physics or maybe the laws of psychology or sociology when we interact with each other. Um, there's causal relationships, right? You know, things cause other things to happen. And then finally, you know, signals hit our sensors, right? And that's what's being recorded. So that's the direction of, you know, the physics of the world into the sensors. That's what we call the data generative model. And then, the, and then deep learning does the opposite. It goes from these signals on the sensors and directly shortcuts a path to predict, you know, what were the objects which were producing these signals. Um, and actually the brain, interestingly, does something similar, right? So we, we have in our brain the ability to, to simulate the world, right? I can, I can close my eyes and I can imagine, you know, what it means to ride on a horse or something like that or to fall off a building, right? And I can just see it happen under the laws of physics. Um, at the same time, I can also instantaneously recognize objects in the world. So there's these pathways in our brain which just take in sensory data and immediately produce, segment the world into objects and, and sort of tell me what's in the world without me thinking about it. So in, in our brain, we have these two modalities as well. And, and, and Kahneman calls this slow and fast thinking, basically. So these mm -hmm. are two quite different pathways to, to think. And so, um, so the question becomes, you know, how far can we take this kind of data-driven approach? And, and my, my, my post was about, well, humans are a lot better in certain things than current algorithms. Algorithms have trouble with generalizing away from in the domain in which they're trained, right? If I train an algorithm to play Go, and then I tell it, okay, now play chess, right? It, or, or play Go on a smaller board even, or, with, you know, with different color stones or something, it gets confused because it wasn't trained for that. Right. For the humans, example that, it, that always comes to mind for me was uh, a video of um, in Peter Abil's lab training a, a robotic arm to, I think, untangle a rope. And it does great on a green, you know, when the rope is on a green table, but when it's on a red table, and I'm making these colors up, but the idea is the same. When it's on a red table, it totally fails. It's just that right. the models are that dependent on the specifics of uh, yeah. the, the the environment in which they're trained. Yeah, and so um, and, and that's a very good example. And so um, you know maybe another example is you know I was driving on a road a couple of times, and then you know there was roadworks, and what they did was they kept all the white sort of lane dividers on the road, and they just put you know, yellow ones, you know, on, on completely different positions. And everybody knew what to do, even though the, the, the white lane dividers were still there. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm pretty sure an algorithm 
you know, when it's not trained on that, will that get totally confused, right? And what, so what's the underlying problem is that, um, so they don't generalize because they don't understand the world in this generative data generating way. So, and, 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 you know, what Josh Tenenbaum has been saying and many others have been saying is that you cannot collect nearly enough data to, you know, to capture all of your corner cases, right? I mean, it's like, there's so many things that can happen in the world. It's like an exponential number of things that can happen in the world. And many things are very rare. Um, and so we need ways to generalize the lessons we learn in one context into sort of a completely different context. And, you know, one school of thought is that the only way to do that is to understand the world in a generative way. So because and the reason is that the generative direction is much more efficient because, you know, it's mo it's modular. You know, we have things that, you know, relatively independently do things, operate. Um, th these are the objects and the agents in the world. Right. And they follow causal laws. Uh, they follow f the laws of physics. Um, and there's very few parameters in that, right? We know that, you know, the, phys the laws of physics eventually have very few parameters. Um, and so, so that generative direction is a lot simpler than the opposite direction. You said something really interesting in there, though. Uh, the entire phrase was, was understand the world in a generative way. When I think of most of the generative models that we're talking about, there's not any understanding there. It's just spitting out probabilistically the the best next thing yeah so so under you know thinking about uh what it really means to understand something is a whole different area but you could think about you know predicting the future right so let, let's say understand if you understand the world at some level i can predict the future better right and now let's imagine you know um I, I need to do some of a prediction and I don't know the, the causal laws. If I know the laws of physics and I know the laws of psychology and I know what causes what, it's going to be far easier for me to predict the future than if I don't have all of that. Um, in fact, I can train something in one context and if I understand how physics work and I get into a completely different context, I can still predict the future, right? Um, because I understand the causal mechanisms. And so, so the claim is that the world is a lot simpler in the causal direction or in the sort of physical sort of ge data generative direction and is a lot more complicated in the opposite direction. Yet, if I define my application area narrowly enough, I can collect a huge amount of data on that particular narrowly defined problem. And then the inverse, you know, going directly from the sensors back to the predicting the objects is going to be more effective, right? Because that's the deep learning direction. So with sufficient data, you know, that is the direction in which you actually also want to predict, which is the inverse direction from the generative model. And, you know, that is the most effective way of doing things if you have a lot of data and you have defined your domain narrowly enough. And I think, therefore, we need to find sort of a middle ground. We basically have to say, if, if you know, if we don't know much about a domain, if we get thrown into a new situation, we need to rely on our, our generative models of the world. And we need to, in, you know, try, you know, invert those in order to make predictions. Yet, if we collect enough data in a certain domain, then we can form this direct pathway from the sensors directly to making predictions. And then that's going to be the most effective and accurate way of, of making predictions. How do you take action on this idea? Or how do we as a community of practitioners and, and, and researchers kind of take action on this idea? 
Well, it depends a little, little bit on what you're interested in, right? So if you're interested in a narrow domain problem, like you want to predict speech or you want to do speech translation or something like that, um, then you should go with the deep learning approach, right? Because it just that's just the best thing because you can collect a lot of data and it works best. If you're interested in solving general AI, so de developing um, sort of agents that are versatile and that can operate in many different circumstances, right? Then I think you know you may have to start thinking about integrating these two models. And um, so what we have been doing um, in in the lab, um, in sort of my uh, sort of uh, M lab at the university, um, is we have been taking a, um, a uh, sort of somewhat older paradigm, which we call graphical models. So graphical models were models which were very popular like maybe 10 years ago or so, where you would take uh, sort of uh, nodes in a they graph. They seem to be coming back a little bit, don't they? Maybe. I, I, maybe. I hear a ton about graphical models nowadays, like in recent NeurIPS, the past couple of years in NeurIPS. A lot of people seem to be doing work around graphical models. Okay, well, it's, it seems to stand to reason that you know something that is good eventually will find its way back. And so the, <laughs> the, the the fire, you know, the, the deep learning fire has burned out a little bit, um, and then and then of course you know you then uh, you, you then get a phase where you can start to synthesize things, right? You can say, okay, we had this in the past, we have now this. Both are really good things. Mm -hmm. You know, let's see if we can sort of combine them a little bit. So this is some of the work that we are doing. So we have um, sort of a model where we will sort of generate, you know, we have a generative model, let's say a Kalman filter, which is a dynamical model of, uh, you know, of a, somebody moving around in the world and, and sort of observing sort of things about the world. And in, in these graphical models, every node means something, right? That's the, the agent's position at every point in time is, is one node in this graph. Um, and if you want to figure out, let's say, okay, if I have these sort of imp these partial observations about the world, like a bunch of images maybe taken from from the agent, can I try? Can I infer, you know, where the agent was? And that you can do with a, with something that we call uh, inference. So that that's a different inference than we these days we call inference on a deep neural net. This is a probabilistic inference where we basically say what's the probability distribution of this person being at this position, at this point in time, given all the observations I have uh, right now. Um, and so that's actually a message passing scheme. So you send messages over the edges of this graph to figure this out. That was belief propagation, and this was, was a very popular research topic, you know, 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, now we also have something, so the other option would be to collect a huge amount of data. Um, basically, you know, person is here, uh, and observes this, a person here observes this, right? So if you collect a huge amount of data, you can also do it the opposite way. You can say, okay, map directly from my observations, you know, back to the positions of this particular person because I happen to have that data available. Um, and if I have enough of that data, then um, I can actually do a better job typically than my Kelman filter because my, you know, my Kelman filter has like strong assumptions on, on linearity and Gaussianity um, basically built in it. And if the world isn't, you know, linear, um, then you're in trouble because, you know, you, you'll make you make wrong predictions. Um, but if you just build this neural network, which goes in the opposite direction, takes the observations and directly maps onto the, onto the locations, then, you know, if you put enough parameters in it and you have enough data, then you can train it very, very accurately, right? So now the trick becomes... 
okay, so if I put into a new environment, I don't have data, so I will rely on this sort of, you know, clunky Kalman filter, but it will give me a fairly good estimate. And then as I go and collect more and more data, as I'm in that, as, as I live in that environment, I'm going to train up the model in the opposite direction. Um, and um, that at some point will become more accurate than my Kalman filter. Um, and then, you know, I just basically switch to the sort of to the to the, the deep learning uh, sort of solution. And so this is one example where, you know, we have a message passing scheme on a graph that, you know, automatically switches between either the old fashioned sort of um, inference and graphical model to the sort of more modern sort of uh, graph convolutional neural networks. Interesting. A lot of the folks that are pursuing deep learning as a path to AGI kind of ultimately feel like the, the, you know, this thing that we call AGI or maybe the step before AGI will be uh, an ensemble of perhaps many uh, deep models as opposed to, you know, one single Uber model. Uh, if you kind of apply that same thinking to what you're describing, you can envision an ensemble of many deep models and many generative models. And yeah, I'm almost thinking of like a, a hybrid car. If you've ever, if you've been in a Prius recently, you might have seen that little picture where they show you like whether it's the battery that's driving the motor or the, the, the motor that's kind of charging the battery, kind of this back and forth flow, depending on what's happening and what the model is being, or the agent is being exposed to that's determining you know, whether we're, um, you know, relying more on the, the deep model at any particular point in time or the generative model. Is that kind of the, the way you, you know, a, a way that you can see this evolving? Yeah, so that that's certainly um, the way I see this evolving. So um, let me stay with the example of a car maybe. So you can actually a modern car, even a self-driving car, would still have a whole bunch of rule sets to cover all the corner cases. Um, because you can't collect enough data on these corner cases. But maybe in the future, you know, there are enough, you know, for a particular set of corner cases. Let's say, uh, you know, you're driving on freeways, you're, you can do fine, you've collected a lot of data, but now you turn into Amsterdam, right? And there's so many exceptions and, and difficult situations where bicycles will crush you and pedestrians will do weird things and walk through red lights and all that, what's happening in Amsterdam. So you, you cannot rely on, on just a learned model because it will fail, right? And so you have to basically go back to, you know, if this, then that, if this, then that. Um, and, um, and you have to know when to switch, right? And so – and then maybe I can loop back to Bayesian statistics. So you have to understand when you don't understand, right? So this deep learning model or this machine learning model will basically have to figure out, okay, so I'm running out of my – you know, domain where I'm trained, um, I'm starting to fail here. I'm going to switch over to rules or I'm going to switch over to the actual driver um, to make sure I don't get into an accident. Um, and it's this interaction where, you know, and, and then you can imagine where a lot of cars are slowly, you know, getting into new situations and they're all learning distributively, you know, collectively they're learning about some of these corner cases and that gets embedded into the model and then we slowly switch, you know, to using that model. And what's interesting to me about that example is that the the premise seems to be that we will get to a point where the complexity of the environment is too much for 
the learned model, and then we need to switch to rules. Uh, but a lot of the where learned models have proven themselves to be effective and powerful are you know, these situations where we can't come up with the rules because the rules are too complex. Yeah. So, you know, you know, clearly um, in many situations where you have enough data, you should not use rules um, because, you know, it's just not good enough, right? Um, in fact, you should just train that mapping directly. But the advantage of rules is that you can express them in human language, right? I mean, we know in some sense when we're driving a car, right? You know, we know, you know, when to stop for a red light, you know, when to, you know, when, when, a, when somebody is you know, passing the street or something like that, or complicated combinations of situations. Um, we know how to, you know, express them in human language um, and turn them into a rule. I mean, there's going to be a gigantic number of rules. I think it's, I don't know, there's 100 million lines of codes in a car or something like that. So it's like huge. Um, but, you know, it's, it is in some sense, you know, a backup system for situations that you can't cover with your deep learning yet. And as I understand it, um, actually, I, when I heard a talk about this uh, by Raquel Urtasun, actually, uh, working for Uber, uh, she mentioned that um, a, a, a large number of, you know, the, 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 you know, a large fraction of the intelligence of a car is actually still rule-based. I'm sure they want to mm -hmm. move more to deep learning, but it's still a, a pretty large fraction is still rule-based. Awesome. Well, Max, this has been a, an amazing discussion. Uh, we could continue, I'm sure, for uh, another hour, but um, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, jump on with us and to share a bit about what you're working on. Thanks. It was a pleasure talking to you. Fantastic. Thank you very much. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit TwimmelAI.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.